c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict. to histories and mysteries with jessica and janelle i'm jessica and i am the janelle the vital janelle that we need for this podcast janelle honestly i don't even know how i'd replace you you know how hard <laughs> it is to find a janelle with just one l it's impossible <laughs> there's very few of us <laughs> we're we're a rare commodity if i was a jessica with just one f i think i'd be hooped oh yeah the, you, we'd be fucked at least i can find another <laughs> jessica with two s's that i'm not too concerned about you can even find another Jessica Peugeot. There's like two in this city. <laughs> <laughs> there can be only one. <laughs> yeah, it's very statistically anomalous. She's in Burnaby. She's an office assistant for a physiotherapist, and I've been stalking her. I was like, you <laughs> you know a lot of information about this woman. If this becomes like a Highlander situation, I want to be ready. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you're ready to go take her out. Pistols at dawn with this woman. You're about to list off her like home address, like where she frequents. I will be the last Jessica standing. <laughs> Apparently. Holy shit. I'm gonna have to dip into my Jessica Bale fund. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a couple other Jessica Peugeots. There's two in Ontario. There's one in the UK. You know, I I, I know where they are at all times. <laughs> you've just got one of those, like, Batman setups where you've tapped into every security camera illegally. <laughs> so you can follow their just movements. following them all. I'm watching. <laughs> this whole podcast is now just grounds for a restraining order with Jessica and Janelle. Yeah, except it's going to be a hilarious restraining order because it's going to be Jessica Pijo versus Jessica Pijo. <laughs> <laughs> You'll bamboozle them. There was another Janelle Como with my exact spelling. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, she died two years ago. So now I am, there is only me. I had nothing to do with it. You're, I don't know. You're the reigning champion of Janelle Como's. She was a vet assistant in texas and every now every now and then i would like google myself because i have no boundaries and i'm very vain <laughs> and then i googled myself last year and my like own obituary came up and i was wow. like Whoa, what the fuck is this and no it was like the other janelle como had died and i felt oh, sadness so sad. i had known about her for years we we were always fighting for the same usernames anytime there was a new platform i was like i have to beat that bitch in texas <laughs> and, <laughs> It's lonely now. I am the only one. Uh, but uh, it is... We are recording this on October the 30th, and I figured for Halloween... Basically for Halloween, I decided to completely ruin a classic ghost story by telling everybody here what actually happened. <laughs> Specifically, uh, we're talking about ghost ships. Uh, and to clarify, I do not mean paranormal apparitions crewed by the souls of the dam, a la the Flying Dutchman. Uh, rather, I mean the well, other kind of ghost ship. Uh, normal, seaworthy vessels that are found meandering around the ocean, crewed by absolutely no one but the tides and the wind. I mean, they're interesting, too. They're less interesting than ghostly apparitions appearing on the horizon. Yeah, but, but like, this is, this is a very reality-based podcast, <laughs> and I have very little evidence for the Flying Dutchman. I... <laughs> Damn. <laughs> like, I, I can tell you the history of it, 
I can tell you the rumors, but like I, I have very little concrete about the true existence of the Flying <laughs> Dutchman. Not a lot to go on, unfortunately. No, I'm, I'm a little bit at sea. Um, sometimes the reason these ships have been set adrift are relatively straightforward, such as the six-meter boat that washed ashore on the American West Coast in Long Beach, Washington in March 2013. Its only inhabitant was a small collection of sea creatures living in the water that had washed into the hold, including five striped beakfish, which is a species native to the Northwest Pacific Ocean, which is to say the waters around Asia. <laughs> Very confusing time for the fish. <laughs> uh, after cleaning the hull, the ship was identified as the Sai Maru, a Japanese boat that had broken loose during the March 2011 tsunami. Oh. <laughs> unleashed, unleashed by the Tohaku earthquake. <laughs> the ocean is unfathomably large and full of horrors. Yeah, the Saisho Maro was assumed to have been destroyed for fairly obvious reasons, but instead spent two years drifting across the Pacific. Just going for a little ride. Just going for a little stroll. Uh, yeah, like the, I think four of the fish were euthanized, and one Aww. of them is still in an aquarium. Why fuck these other four fish in particular? You can live. The other four die. What kind of fucking aquatic squid game was that? Did they make the fifth one watch it? <laughs> <laughs> I know, this is, this is haunting. This is a, this is a horror story, Jessica. I, I think it was because they were a risk as an invasive species, but like, I, I don't know. <laughs> The fish executioner was just like decided to Anastasia the final fish, just like you get to live. <laughs> uh, another example uh, is the SS Bechimo, a 1,322 ton steel hulled cargo steamer that the Hudson's Bay Company used to trade with Inuit communities in the Canadian Arctic in the early 20th century. On October 1st, 1931, she became trapped in ice pack with a, lo a fresh load of furs. The crew took shelter in the nearby town of Barrow for two days, uh, but when they returned, the ship had broken free, and they continued on their voyage. She got stuck again on the 8th and remained stuck until November 24th, when a massive blizzard hit. This time, there was no sign of the Bechamo, and she was assumed sunk. This proved incorrect, <laughs> And the crew that had <laughs> remained to watch over the ship during the winter tracked her down several days later, based on a tip from an Inuit hunter. Presuming the ship could not possibly survive the winter, they removed the most valuable furs from the hold and shipped them out by air. Instead of sinking, the SS Bechimo spent the next few decades <laughs> wandering oh. the Arctic <laughs> with regular <laughs> sightings and occasional boardings. Uh, but due to the precarious nature of the Arctic, salvage or capture was never viable. The last sighting of the SS Bechamo was in 1969. Oh! 38 years after she was abandoned. Just became a little floating tourist attraction with no fixed schedule. <laughs> I'm like, but that's... that's great craftsmanship. My goodness! <laughs> 38 years with no maintenance is a long time for any sort of boat or vehicle. Never mind in those harsh conditions. 
Oh, yeah. I was gonna say, though, like, how many ghost ships are just like, oh, we didn't, we forgot to tie up the ship, and it, it left. <laughs> like, oops. A lot of them, actually. <laughs> a lot of them are ships that are, like, prematurely abandoned, like, they think she's going down, but she stays going. It's, a lot of that is just, like, the sea was rougher than we expected, we panicked, and we left. <laughs> or, it just, like, shit, it, got, out. <laughs> it got blown away by a storm. <laughs> <laughs> people are just like you know what fuck this ship <laughs> fuck this ship i'm out <laughs> <laughs> exactly that's exactly what came to mind <laughs> they just ditch it they're like you know what fuck it but there are other ghost ships other ghost ships without such benign explanations the ocean is a vast and dangerous place and ships were frequently abandoned in the 19th century on most of these ships, there were signs of some kind of crisis or violent struggle. At the very least, some kind of note in the ship's log explaining how and why the crew left. More eerie are the small handful of cases where there is nothing. The ship appears perfectly fine with everything in its place, as if the passengers and crew simply vanished in the middle of an otherwise normal day. Perhaps the best-known historical ghost ship is none other than the infamous Mary Celeste, a strange, real-life incident in the late 1800s that captured the public imagination and took on a semi-mythical status in popular culture, to the point that the details of the true Mary Celeste are often confused with elements from contemporary fictional takes inspired by the case and outright rumors and fabrications published in the tabloids of the time. <laughs> also, cognitively, I know that the Mary Celeste is not the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, but that has not stopped my brain. <laughs> na, 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 The whole time we've been. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, it, American listeners, uh, if you're not from, like, the specific area around the Great Lakes region, in which case you will already know this song, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald is... Different ship. <laughs> Not a ghost ship. We know full well what happened to it. It sunk and everybody died. <laughs> there was there was Down a period where just like a whole bunch of people. It was just like a particularly stormy season on the Great Lakes, and everybody died. Uh, but if you haven't listened to the song, it's a banger. The legend lives on from the Chippewa on down. It's like eight minutes long. It's, oh yeah, it's, an, Here, here's it's incredibly thing. long. I'm not even saying you need to listen to the full eight minutes. Listen to the first thirty seconds, and you'll be sold. It is basically a man singing the details of a naval tragedy into a microphone for eight minutes, and it's a banger. It is beautiful and haunting. <laughs> like, it should not be nearly as good as it is. It's it's a lot of Gordon Lightfoot with just, like, seven-minute power ballads about transportation accidents, and it's it's good. It's, it's good. fucking good. <laughs> so the whole time we discuss the Mary Celeste, please know that my brain is just like, the lake, it is said, never gives up or dead. Like, that's just gonna be in my head the whole time. I'm just too Canadian for this. My brain is just like, boat accident? Edmund Fitzgerald. That's it. That's <laughs> Time for some Gordon Lightfoot. <laughs> Maybe followed by some Stompin' Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Every East Coaster just has to get their, like, their daily eight minutes of Gordon. <laughs> or we just can't function. But this, this is a different one. It still involves, strangely enough, it still involves Eastern Canada. <laughs> it absolutely does. <laughs> Uh, despite We're the always involved somehow. Somehow. Anytime there's like anything to do with wooden boats 
past, like, the year 1700, it probably involves Nova Scotia somehow, at least tangentially. <laughs> Fuck yes. Home of the sunk wooden boats. <laughs> <laughs> and we were, we were just, just a, a really important port for the British Empire during the Age of Sail. We also just, like, physically stick out farther into the ocean than most people think, because... I don't know. If you're American, and I apologize for this, your map of North America kind of mentally ends at the 49th parallel. So you think, ah, just go up from Maine and it's Nova Scotia. No, you gotta go out. We stick out into the ocean. <laughs> like, when you think of, like, eastern seaboard time, like, there's an entire extra <laughs> time zone and a half. We kind of stick out into the ocean. <laughs> okay, the half time zone is ridiculous. You'd be forgiven for not knowing that Newfoundland is half an hour ahead. But Nova Scotia kind of sticks out awkwardly into the ocean, sort of between Europe and New York. You gotta kind of curve past us, so we just become like, ah, there's a sinking boat. Fetch, Nova Scotia, fetch. <laughs> that's how we brought the Titanic. That's why all the Titanic victims are buried like 20 meters from where I'm speaking now. That's why all these famous victims of boating accidents are here. It's because. We build the boats, and then we bring them back when they sink. <laughs> the ship was a hermaphrodite brigantine, which basically means it was almost but not quite qualified as a brig due to how her sails were arranged, but I found the term too funny not to say it. <laughs> Is that a real naval term? Yes. I was like, it was a half brigantine or a hermaphrodite brigantine. <laughs> Interesting. I would have thought for sure that was a Jessicaism. No. Apparently not. Real naval to real naval terminology. Real naval terminology. Like either the ship had both a rudder and a penis, or it was not quite qualified as a brigantine. <laughs> Just picturing ships cutting their way through the ocean with this trailing dong. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Love that. Incredible. <sighs> Yeah. 10 out of 10, no notes. <laughs> uh, the ship was built on Spencer's Island, Nova Scotia, which was not yet part of Canada at the time. Interesting. She was originally <laughs> named Amazon and launched in May of 1861. Should have stuck with that name. <laughs> yeah, Amazon. It's a bit generic, but like, it's nice. <laughs> it's generic now. It would have been interesting at the time. Big titty jungle yeah, woman, I guess. I, guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I've been to Spencer's yeah. Island. It's cute. It's, it's a tourist attraction now. It's quite quaint. Uh, the ship was a relatively small merchantman, only 30 meters long, less than 100 feet. She was technologically outdated, essentially the day she was built, due to the growing popularity of seagoing steamships to transport goods. Ooh. The Amazon had a largely uneventful career, but one that has received an outsized degree of scrutiny due to later events. On her maiden voyage across the Atlantic, her young captain, Robert McClellan, had a mild cold. This, he thought, needed no more than some fresh salt air, and he boarded the ship as scheduled. The Amazon didn't get far, however, before that cold deepened into pneumonia, and they were forced to turn back. <gasps> I was gonna say, I assume he just immediately dies. <laughs> oh, he immediately dies. He died only a few short days later. <laughs> It's the number of people who die in this era from, like, not cutting their toenails properly and getting an infection. Like, there's- it's- it's just a very easy time to die. And as you said, like, oh, you have a respiratory infection? Probably don't stand on the deck of a boat on the North Atlantic. I don't know. I'm not a doctor, but I feel like that's not advised. <laughs> 
maybe what you need is some hard work in the cold, brisk air, <laughs> or maybe you need to stay home and rest. <laughs> like the sh the ship's builder actually did that. Like he's just like, oh, he was supposed to be the captain, but like he was feeling under the weather, so he stayed home. <laughs> <laughs> He, notably, lived to a ripe old age. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not it's not that mysterious to die of a respiratory ailment in that era at all, at any time, in any no, circumstances. That's not even slightly confusing, but people are like, spooky, she was cursed from the day she left port. <laughs> like, nah, nah, people die like that all the fucking time. Everybody was just dropping dead left, right, and center. It... There's, there's no such thing, really, as a mysterious death at this point in human history. It's more mysterious how you manage to live. <laughs> there was a gravestone in my parents' hometown, like a famous gravestone, about from a 14-year-old girl who died of sadness. Oh. Because she had an employer at 14. What a horrible time to be alive. Accused her of stealing from them, and then she literally just like went home and died nine days later of sadness. It took effort oh. to live back then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you had to be determined. <laughs> you really had to put your heart into it. Uh, but not long after, on a trip to Maine, the ship required repairs after running afoul of a fishing weir, which is a series of stakes placed in tidal water to trap fish. When she finally managed to reach London with her initial load of lumber, she apparently had some kind of collision with another vessel and, and sank it. Hmm. Which is like, that is certainly an unusually bad string of luck for a single ship in a very small space of time. But it's not so much creepy as just shitty. The numerous rumors that the ship was cursed from the start are almost entirely exaggeration and colored hindsight. Because after this bumpy start, she then sailed without incident for years right up until late 1867, when she ran aground during a storm, plowing to the, into the coast of Canada's Cape Breton Island. I hate it when one just, like, crashes into Cape Breton Island. It just came out of nowhere. <laughs> Shoots right into the road like a, like a sprightly deer. <laughs> I know, it's like, I, it's a gigantic piece of land. I hate it when it just comes out of nowhere. Yeah. And then you have to be careful because, like, Nova Scotia comes right after. <laughs> It's like, it's just, just There's comes. always two. <laughs> it is. It's like a skittish deer jumping out in front of you. Just, ah, God, Port of Sydney. Holy shit. <laughs> this might seem like just more bad luck, but in truth, this area of the Atlantic is notoriously dangerous in the winter and late fall, to the point that many 19th century insurance companies simply refused to cover losses and damages incurred sailing in those waters past a certain cutoff. Oh, there's like a map of shipwrecks in Nova Scotia because I have my parents have a metal detector and we sometimes go beachcombing. It's like every shipwreck is a dot, and if you zoom out far enough, it just looks like Nova Scotia is furry because it's just ringed in red dots because this is a very rocky. This this part of the world has some of the thickest fog imaginable. There's days where I can't see the house on the other side of the street. Um, at like two o'clock in the afternoon, like it doesn't burn off. This is a rocky, jagged coast with lots of tiny little ass islands that are not charted. There's hurricanes. It's very difficult to find an accurate naval chart in the area. I go boating sometimes because there's all these little fuck off islands that some of them are only visible in certain depths. Like the tide comes in and then they're gone. It's a very difficult place to boat. <laughs> the crew survived without any losses, but the Amazon was so badly damaged she was abandoned as a wreck. 
The derelict was salvaged and changed hands a few times before being sold at bottom barrel price to an American mariner, Captain Richard W. Haynes, in November 1868, who restored the ship and named it the Mary Celeste, possibly after Sister Maria Celeste, born Virginia Galilei, a nun and the illegitimate daughter of Galileo. Mm. Also, it's bad luck to rename a boat. So that's that's clearly what did it. <laughs> the next year, she was seized to pay for the debts Haynes had racked up during the renovations and sold to a New York consortium headed by a James H. Winchester. In 1872, the Mary Celeste was refitted and significantly enlarged, including a second deck and significantly more cargo space, to the point that she was quite nearly good as new. That same year, Benjamin Spooner Briggs, who had bought a one-third interest in the ship, took over as her captain. Spooner Briggs is such a great name for a ship captain. <laughs> it's Captain Spooner Briggs. <laughs> <laughs> I would respect that captain. Absolutely. And he was very well respected. He was an experienced seaman of 37, both a captain and the son of a captain, as <laughs> naval families, it tends to run. Uh, you know, like there are people who are just, they're in the, they're in there for generations. It's, it's uh, a very nepotistic field. <laughs> yes. But it also tends to be because, like, you live in the same area your father did, and that's what the economy is. Um, <laughs> it's boats. Everybody does boats. Boats, 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 boats. Everybody. <laughs> uh, and he had a strong reputation among those who had served under him as a fair, gentle, and competent man. He was notably religious, even for the time, and abstained from alcohol. He and his younger brother, Oliver, another captain, had considered retiring from sailing and buying a hardware store together, but the post-Civil War economy was shaky, and they instead bought shares in different ships, and set once more to sea. Much like the Mary Celeste, the Briggs family had seen its share of disaster. In four separate incidents, Briggs had lost an uncle, his only sister, and two of his brothers at sea. Oliver himself had had two near misses. Of all his family who had lived and worked at sea, Benjamin Briggs was the only one who had never experienced serious peril. Another curious exception, however, was his father, who instead died in a freak accident during a storm when the doorframe he was standing in was struck by lightning. Oh. Well, that's at least a fun way to die. <laughs> it's entertaining. People are dying of the common cold on ship decks, so you may as well get struck by lightning. Yeah, but two of his brothers died of yellow fever in separate incidents, and oh. his sister married a sea captain and then got swept out to sea. Oh. Oh, wait. <laughs> after after a boat sank. Yeah, no. He, like this, And this had happened all in a very short period of time. This family had had a bunch of losses. It does tend to happen. There's actually a rule in Nova Scotia to this day that, like, family members can't be on the same ship. Yeah, because, because it'll just devastate problem. the family. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes, like, a whole a whole male line would go down on the same boat. It's like, well, now what the fuck do we do? You'd lose, like, six men from the same family all in one go, and it's like, well, we want to space out our tragedy. Breathing room between funerals. <laughs> a kinder, gentler approach. And, like, it, it was weird that all of these incidents happened separately, but, like, this isn't an... Like, this is sad, but again, like, people died a lot at sea. <laughs> it was kind of understood that this was something that happened. Like, you, uh, 
there's there's a reason there's a there's an architectural feature called a widow's walk, a little like porch balcony thing that you can look out at sea from in the front of the house, and it's called a widow's walk because that's where women would wait for their boats to come in. Because if your husband's boat didn't come back at the expected time, you were probably a widow. Yeah, and that was just something that was understood. These sea towns had a lot of widows, a lot of orphans. Uh, it's a high risk lifestyle. <laughs> Well, and think about the times. You're going out to sea in what is effectively a giant wooden hot tub. You've got no radar. You're in a wooden boat. They're flammable, and everybody's lighting their way with candles. Ships often went down in fires, of all things. Everybody's smoking. You've got no communications, no radio. You're carrying God knows what in the cargo hold. Frequently industrial shit. Highly flammable. Fuel, alcohol... You're you're gauging the weather by, like, looking, squinting real hard at the horizon in the evenings. Like, you don't have an accurate weather forecast. If a hurricane is coming, you're the last to know about it. There's there's not a lot of safety features here. You're just in a big wooden bucket in the ocean. It's not safe. No, it's not. It's barely safe now. I mean, now it's actually a very safe way to travel. But it took a lot of technology and a lot of sunken ships to get us to this point. Briggs chose his crew from a list of sailors who he had largely never worked with before, but who came highly recommended. He had sailed with his first mate, who was Albert G. Richardson, a Civil War veteran and the son and the son-in-law of primary stakeholder James Winchester. Whether or not part of the reason Winchester was hired was family connection, Briggs apparently thought very highly of him. Uh, including Briggs, the crew numbered eight in total. Nine if you count the ship Cat. <laughs> Which we do. We do count the ship cat. <laughs> Which we do. We absolutely a do. A valued member of this crew. The cat will not become important again in the rest of the story, but there was a cat, and I feel that's important to note. <laughs> uh, the second mate was a young New Yorker named Andrew Gilling, the steward of Brooklyn newlywed named Edward William Head, and there were four German hands, including two brothers who were working their way back to Germany. Uh, all seemed serious, experienced, and competent. In addition, the ship carried two passengers, Briggs' wife and cousin Sarah, and their two-year-old daughter Sophia. We got some diversity in this ship. It's a diverse <laughs> ship of white people. <laughs> yeah. But some of them are German and some are women. What a, <laughs> That's a lot of diversity for a ship in the 1800s. One of them's even a baby. <laughs> now this is a very, very white ship. Well, Which will be important later, actually. It will be, actually. <laughs> that will be important later. <laughs> Mostly due to Arthur Conan Doyle, which is weird. <laughs> That's a lot of weird twists and turns to this story. The fact that Briggs brought along his family is sometimes used to support the idea that they faked their own disappearance to start a new life elsewhere. An idea which is complicated by the fact that they left their seven-year-old son Arthur behind in the care of Briggs' mother and brother James so that he wouldn't miss school. Also by the fact that it's not that difficult to start a new life somewhere in this day and age. You don't need to fake your own deaths. You just need to move two towns over and no one will ever see you again. You don't need to fake one of the greatest mysteries of the 18th century. It's, it's not necessary. Really, that's drawing more attention than needed. <laughs> you, have, you have subtler options available to you. And part of why Briggs had considered retiring was to spend less time away from his family in a line of work less closely associated with premature death. <laughs> Oops. Yeah, the attraction of the Mary Celeste was its expanded cabin space, which would allow him to at least bring his wife and daughter along. The Mary Celeste arrived on Pier 50 in New York City on October 20th, 1872. 
where they took on a load of 1,701 barrels of some form of industrial alcohol. Possibly denatured alcohol, which is a type of industrial ethanol that has been mixed with other chemicals to render it unpleasant and poisonous to drink. But also possibly methanol or formaldehyde. Mmm. Good stuff. And and denatured alcohol was just often ethanol mixed with methanol, which is wood alcohol, and if you drink it, you will go blind. They still do this. It's to avoid taxes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, anytime you need pure ethanol for, like, medical purposes, they just use denatured because it costs nothing. It's worthless. (laughs) Throughout the pandemic, they started, they made a lot of, like, when hand sanitizer was at an absolute premium, they made a lot of hand sanitizer out of just, like, denatured alcohol. It was yes. just ethanol that they ruined, basically. Yeah, and, and ethanol being the only alcohol that is drinkable by human beings, everything else is just fucking poisonous. So if you are an alcoholic and you are desperately sucking at... This this was a problem that usually happened at our local library. A lot of people with alcohol problems would try to drink the hand sanitizer. and Don't fucking do that. <laughs> it, it will kill you. No, I've had issues with that. I've been working the front lines in homeless services throughout the uh, pandemic, and we've had the same sort of, we've had to, we've had to caution folks, this is not good stuff, you do not want to drink this, not as a dare. We have, I work with kids, so it's kids daring each other, like, (laughs) please do not. You should drink that, like, Um, please don't. (laughs) I think methanol even, like, converts to formaldehyde in the body. It's, uh, I mean, to be clear, ethanol is poisonous. It's straight poison. It's just a poison that your, your liver knows what to do with. (laughs) We've been poisoning ourselves with ethanol for so long, our body's like, fine. Like, I guess. (laughs) Uh, Not only was this alcohol not ingestible, uh, Briggs allowed no other alcohol on the ship. Uh, Nonetheless, it was potentially dangerous cargo, primarily due to the risk of fire or explosion. On, On a rough Atlantic voyage, it was all but certain that a few of the barrels would seep or rupture, You'd, you'd always have a certain amount of it vaporized because this is very, very concentrated alcohol. It evaporates quite quickly. And, like, these are not plastic barrels. This is wood barrels. <laughs> they're not airtight. They're not, they're not as leak-proof as you'd want for transporting something that hazardous. Uh, another ship at port around the same time was the De Gradia, uh, another brigantine headed by a burly Nova Scotian by the name of David Reed Morehouse. A good Scotian name. He had a chest like a bear and a beard down to hair. He was a good <laughs> Scotian. A Scotian fella. Yeah, Morehouse and Briggs likely knew each other, at least in passing. But one later account, specifically by Morehouse's wife, claimed that the two had dinner together the last night Briggs spent in New York and had plans to meet in Italy, seeing as their time in port there would likely overlap. According to Mrs. Morehouse, they were even close friends. However, she made this claim nearly five decades later, and there is no other credible report that would indicate that the two were notably close. The Mary Celeste left November 5th, headed for Genoa, Italy, though Briggs halted two days off Staten Island due to stormy weather and abundance of caution. They likely left with a single lifeboat aboard, described as a small yawl. Some stories claim that an additional lifeboat, a longboat, was damaged during loading. Other accounts, such as that of James Winchester, claim that Winchester had discussed the poor condition of the larger of the two lifeboats and promised to order a replacement. Regardless, the only recorded lifeboat at the time of the departure was the yawl. What is a yawl? Uh, A yawl 
I mean, it's 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 just like a it's a little fucking dingy thing. Uh, y'all, like it, it's it, there's a more technical term for it <laughs> than little fucking dingy thing. That's not the technical it's term. It's a little I'm fucking shocked. dingy thing. I'm shocked. Uh, here's 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 what a y'all is. A y'all is a two masted fore and aft rig sailboat. There we go. With the mizzen man stepped far aft so that the mizzen boom hangs over the stern. Nope, you're right. Little fucking dingy thing. It's a that. little fucking dingy thing with <laughs> with a bunch of sails on it, okay? <laughs> it's probably not what you want to be the only thing standing between you and death in the Atlantic Ocean. But, you know, we do what we can. But just think a, a dingy with a mast, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Picture it. Okay, that's what All a y'all right. is. And it's not like Y apostrophe A-L-L. It's not a y'all. It's, it's, it's Y-A-W-L. Ah, <laughs> oh, that does change things. It's the kind of boat where, like, if you're just cruising on the shoreline on a sunny day, it's not a big issue. Or if you're on a lake, it's not a problem. But this is not a big enough boat to survive for very long in rough seas or on the Atlantic, okay? <laughs> <laughs> you do not want to be this to be the only safety measure when you're basically on a floating cannonball. No. So on November 7th, Sarah Briggs sent a last letter to Briggs' mother, relating news of recent events, including some sour-baked apples they had recently had, which were reportedly the size of a newborn infant's head. Very specific. Not exactly the unit of measurement I would personally use, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what is this? Is there a standard for that? (laughs) This is no way to run a country, madam. <laughs> <laughs> I've never looked at anything and been like, that's the size of a baby head. Not a, not a unit of measurement I use. <laughs> it doesn't seem like a good standardized measurement. Like, I, I remember this story from when I was a baby, and apparently they just had me, like, and I was, I was a fat child. I was huge. <laughs> I was gonna say, I was born at 10 pounds. I was a big baby. <laughs> I, I was 9 pounds, 2 ounces, and they had me next to this little preemie, I looked like I could eat him. (laughs) Yeah, I was born with like a full head of blonde hair and I was born like after three days of labor. I'm lucky my mother didn't just eat me for nutrients (laughs) and revenge. But I was in the NICU because I was born in like fetal distress. And like the pictures of me in the NICU are hysterical because I'm this giant 10 pound baby with a full head of curly blonde hair. And there's all these, like, itty-bitty micro-preemies in the cradles next to me. I just, I look like I'm three months old. Like, I'm way too big to be there. (laughs) Everyone else looks like they should be in an incubator. Meanwhile, you look like you're about to go Godzilla on them. (laughs) I was the demo baby for all the parents at the hospital at the time because I was the largest child in the fucking maternity ward. So the nurses would, like, (laughs) take me from room to room to show parents how to swaddle. (laughs) this is a sturdy sample baby come with me back in the day when they would just like take your child and just bring it from room to room for baby demonstrations well that, that was the thing is like my, my mom was like just looking at me through the glass shortly after i was born and she'd been she'd been like working really hard the entire time as she was pregnant she was very athletic she was she had a job delivering pizzas and you know, so she was on her feet like two hours after giving birth, oh, and shit. she, oh yeah, no, like legit, right? Yeah, I would have taken a nap, uh, especially because like I was her biggest kid. I I I think I I did my two siblings by half a pound, and 
And my mom's not a big woman either. She's five foot two. And, you know, the nurse comes over. is like, oh, what are you doing up here? She's like, oh, I just had a baby. Oh, which one's yours? That one. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> Go lie down. Your things are going to fall out of you. <laughs> I, like, look like, I, looked, I looked like a Thanksgiving turkey with a bobble hat. <laughs> like, oh, my God. What, what horror have you birthed? Yeah, I was... I was quite large. <laughs> uh, as the Mary Celeste left, shortly before Oliver Briggs arrived in New York aboard the Julia A. Halleck, this letter would be the last time the family would ever hear from anyone aboard the Mary Celeste. Dun dun dun. And it's just talking about fucking baby heads. <laughs> and the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Nope, wrong boat. Still the wrong boat. Ten days after Briggs left port, on November 15th, the day Gradia itself set sail, following along roughly the same path as the Mary Celeste, headed for Gibraltar. Uh, Gibraltar, for the geographically unsophisticated, is a strategically <laughs> important rock owned by the British off the southern trip of, tip of Spain. That's the most generous description of Gibraltar. <laughs> <laughs> It's a strategically important rock. That kind of sums it up, you know? No, I'm not mad at that. That's The British want to own it very much. <laughs> yeah, specifically, it's because it's close to the narrow, narrow channel that separates the Iberian Peninsula, that is Spain and Portugal, from Africa. It's a good place to park guns. <laughs> yeah, it's known as the Strait of Gibraltar. And it was the only seaway access into the Mediterranean Sea up until the building of the Suez Canal. <laughs> Yay. Yeah, so it was really important through most of naval military history in Europe. I mean, we, like, we've all got to see how important the Suez Canal was this year when that boat got stuck in it and it blocked like 27% of like commerce on Earth. <laughs> like It was yeah. a very important chunk of land. <laughs> so you can imagine how important... Gibraltar has been throughout the years. <laughs> the strait is only 13 kilometers or 7 nautical miles across at its narrowest point, so any ship from New York headed for the Mediterranean would take essentially the same route. Nonetheless, the De Gradia had both left 10 days later was a significantly slower vessel than the Mary Celeste, and there was no reason to think that the two would meet until they shared a port in Europe. Dun, dun, dun. The winter weather was particularly rough that year on the Atlantic crossing. The day Gradia spent 19 days sailing through stormy seas, before finally, on December 4th, they had a relative calm. Incidentally, if you decide to read any original documents on this case, keep in mind that on sea time, days start at noon and don't necessarily line up to the time zone on land. So this would be recorded as having occurred on December 5th, uh, according to the De Gradia's original documents. Uh, at noon, Morehouse noted their position at 28 degrees 20 north latitude and 17 degrees 15 longitude, headed southeast by one half east, halfway between the Azores Islands and Portugal, 630 miles from their final destination, with 1,735 barrels of petroleum on board. God, there's so much math involved in boats. Uh, I hate having to read numbers. I'm bad at it. <laughs> uh, no one else gets to know this because I, I, I edit out the pauses. But every time I have to read a number longer than like a two, 
Like, Janelle gets to hear me pause and sound it out. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you, like, psych- I know a number's coming because you pause to, like, psych yourself up for it. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm gonna have to say 1752, and it's gonna be embarrassing. <laughs> you gotta kind of get a running start on some of these numbers. <laughs> <laughs> I, I almost always say 19 when I, I have to say so, an earlier century. <laughs> <laughs> Everything happened in the 1920s. It's fine. Yeah. Around 1 p.m., Morehouse joined his men at the forecastle, and shortly after 1.30, he spotted a ship on the horizon, about six miles away. This was a well-traveled shipping lane, and the captain initially sought nothing of it. Quickly, however, he decided there was something strange about it. Something he couldn't quite place. She's a spooky vessel. The boat had bad vibes. He couldn't quite place what it was, and he brought up his looking glass. Upon closer inspection, the ship was using hardly any sail, despite the extremely light breeze. Hmm. No sensible captain would risk becoming stuck in a dead patch of sea, and Morehouse quickly concluded that the other ship might be in some form of distress, and ordered his helmsman to adjust their bearing to bring them closer for a better look. After 20 minutes it became clear that the ship was indeed flying peculiarly little sail, only a jib and a single reefed sail, a jib being a relatively small triangular sail that stretches between the bow and the foremast, the front of the ship and the mast closest to the front, and a reef sail being one that is partially tied and furled. Uh, generally speaking, the primary reason for a partially reefed sail would be to allow the sail to catch part of a particularly hard wind that might destabilize the ship or damage the sail. This just sounds like a pain in the ass way to get around. <laughs> uh, the ship, wise, ship was likewise moving strangely, mindlessly, bucking wildly and yawing. That is to say, pitching alternately to port and to starboard. As they drew nearer, Morehouse thought he could see a distress flag flying from one of the yardarms. It had no other visible markings or flags. All he could tell was that it was a brigantine, much like the De Gradia herself. Yeah, bucking wildly is not what you want from your boat in the middle of the Atlantic. No, and it's not how a boat moves when it's under the control of a human being. No. <laughs> this is an unloved boat. Morehouse called his first mate, an equally experienced Nova Scotian, Oliver DeVoe, who concurred with the captain that there was something deeply strange about the other vessel, and that they should approach and offer aid. Around 3pm, the Degradia drew within 400 yards. Morehouse saw no signs from anyone aboard, no one on watch, no one at the helm. And more disturbing still, what hung from the yardarm was no distress flag, but rather the tattered remains of a sail. Ooh, that's not a good sign. That has some real, like, you know, when any any good space movie when they, like, board the abandoned spaceship and then they realize everything's off. It has, it has those kinds of vibes. <laughs> it really does. It's like, oh yeah, the distress signal has just been automatically playing and no one, no one has been at the helm for days. Like Some part of a, like, astronaut floats by. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, just fuck. a hand drifting around. <laughs> Morehouse sent DeVoe to investigate. DeVoe chose the second mate, John Wright, to board the ship with him, and helpsman John Johnson to mine the lo- lifeboat as they did. God, there's a lot of Johns in this story. 
there's a lot of Johns. We got sturdy, John Wright, John Johnson. It's a sturdy Johnny Boy. seafaring name. <laughs> While the sea felt relatively calm aboard the Degradia, crossing in the relatively small lifeboat was a far rougher affair. There were no obvious holes in the hull, and her protective copper sheathing was unblemished as, and as good as new. The rudder was fine, though she was dragging a few lines, likely severed rigging. Hmm. Aboard, she was eerily silent. The port side rail had been removed and lay on the deck, and the wheel turned by itself as the waves pushed against the rudder. Another scrap of sail covered the galley stovepipe, and a cabin door swung back and forth, at one point slamming and startling both DeVoe and Wright. There were several inches of standing water in the galley, so after a quick investigation of the ship, determining that no soul was aboard, DeVoe checked the bilge pumps to see if the Mary Celeste was taking on water. And I mean, this would have been terrifying, because, like, it's a very, very expensive thing to abandon a ship. It's not something that people typically do lightly. And, like, this is... And, it, and it's dangerous to abandon ship. It is. You, you now have like, a... It's dangerous. This is how the Halifax exploded when you abandon a ship and it careens wildly into a major urban metropolis before it explodes. <clears throat> it's it's dangerous for all involved. There's these are heavily trafficked shipping routes, so you just have this like untethered, uncontrolled ship drifting into people's way. And also like this is not a complex vessel. It's a big giant wooden bathtub in the middle of the ocean. They can fix many of the issues that arise. And someone had tried to see if something was wrong. DeVoe checked the bilge pumps to see if the Mary Celeste was taking on water. Someone else had clearly had the same idea, as the pumps were already removed from their pipes and a sounding rod lay nearby. DeVoe's reading measured only three and a half feet or one meter in the hold, enough to warrant a dressing but by no means a critical or even concerning amount of seawater in a ship of that size. Most ships needed to be pumped out regularly, and the Mary Celeste was at no risk of sinking. The wheel had not been tied, as would be standard to any helm left unattended, and the binnacle, which is a box that held the ship's compass and similar instruments, had been ripped from the roof of the aft deckhouse near the helm and lay smashed upon the deck. Like, the thing with these ships is that, like, if you abandon ship, you're just, like, stranded in the middle of the Atlantic. The ship itself is your best chances of reaching land. So the threshold yeah. for abandoning it is high. No matter how fucked the ship is. <laughs> right, as long as she can limp back to port. like <laughs> No matter how bad the ship is, no matter how fucked, even if she has a major hole, <laughs> you are better off just trying to patch it and see how far you can get. <laughs> You're going to do your best to limp that fucker back to a major port. You're not going to abandon ship because you're in a worse situation without the boat. Yeah, and, like, the y'all is not that good of an alternative. No. Like, it's a last yeah. resort among last <laughs> resorts. Like, it's it's not good. Because, like, here's the thing. Most of the hatches were open. Some There's some disagreement between Wright and DeVoe whether the main hatch was open or closed. And many of the portholes were boarded or covered in canvas, perhaps as a form of stormproofing, but the fore and lazarette hatches were off, the skylight was open, as if it had been a relatively pleasant day. Which doesn't make sense if you're taking on water. No. <laughs> and it could mean it could mean that most of the water was just from being unattended for several days. Well yeah, that's just it. Like it's you actively have to pump water out of the ship. So when people stop doing that 
Water accumulates. Yeah, then it slowly takes on water. But, like, the amount of water that's in it, even if it had been three and a half when the ship was abandoned, why would you, like, no experienced seaman would leave the ship. (laughs) Where the fuck are you gonna go? (laughs) Like, (laughs) where are you going? It's not better over there. Get back in the boat. just get to the nearest (laughs) land and you abandon it. Exactly. You're between a rock and the Atlantic Ocean. Like, there's no better option here. And, like, they're not that far from land. No, they can make it back. Like, they're between the Azores Islands and Portugal. <laughs> it's not quite backstroke distance, but, you know. It's, it's it's a difficult distance to make it swimming. It's impossible to do it swimming. You're gonna die. <laughs> it's almost impossible in a yawl. But even in a badly damaged brigantine, you can get there. You have to. That's your only option. <laughs> it's that of yeah. dying. And, like, like there may be a lot of ripped sails here, but, like, they had extras. Just folded. Just every ship out. does, and every sailor knows how to patch a, patch a sail. Worst comes to worst, you, like, you're gonna sacrifice some of your clothes, but, like, y- you can patch it up. Like, everyone here knows how to sew. <laughs> yeah, every sailor is an accomplished sewer at this point. Every sailor knows how to stitch a canvas yeah. sail back together. A lot of them don't know how to swim but they can sew. <laughs> it's a fundamental skill on a ship like that. Wright inspected the forecastle, which he found several inches deep in water, the stove knocked over, and pots and pans floating about. DeVoe investigated the captain's quarters, whose door lay ajar. It was tidy, beyond the unmade bed and general dampness. Some of the ship's papers, as well as the captain's instruments, were missing. There were personal effects all around, like a dress draped over the chair, a sewing machine, and various tiny clothes and toys that indicated a woman and child had lived there. Likewise, on the damp bed, there was a strange dry patch in the outline of a small human form. Ooh, that's haunting. There was a baby here, and somehow the baby got rained on. Hate that when that happens. (laughs) Always hate a damp baby. It's the worst kind. In the first mate's quarters, DeVoe found a chart mapping the Mary Celeste's course. Last updated on November 24th, ten days before. He likewise found a book containing the ship's expenses and receipts and a log, detailing basic business like speed and wind direction. Again, the log's last date was the 24th. DeVoe was, however, also able to find the log slate in the main cabin. This is an erasable slate that the crew would take notes on during their regular duties which they would then use to update the log at the end of a shift. This slate contained notes from the morning of the 25th, which again appeared to have been perfectly routine. The Mary Celeste had been traveling eight knots, indicating a strong wind. At 5 a.m., they had spotted the Azores island of Santa Maria. At 8 a.m., they had passed the last island in the chain, listing their position at six miles east. Below was an entry for 9 a.m., entirely blank. There the log ended. There was, however, one odd footnote. At the bottom of the left side of the slate, someone had written, Francis, my own dear wife, Francis N.R. Spooky. Incidentally, I have no idea who Francis is. (laughs) (laughs) Man, I have no clue. It's it's funny how we've really glamorized, like, the sailor pirate life when it's just math and paperwork. (laughs) Holy shit. I mean, you have to communicate these things to to the next shift, so I guess, like, writing everything down in a painstaking log is is the way to go. But wow, that's a lot of math and paperwork. That's what you're there for. 
According to her last record, on the morning of November 25th, the Mary Celeste had been at 97 degrees 1 north, 25 degrees 1 west, traveling east. Now she lay nearly 400 nautical miles, over 700 kilometers away, pointed southwest. In the deck house where the crew sleeps, DeVoe noted four bunks but only three sea chests. He initially thought it a potential missing item, but this was in fact due to the fact that two of the hands were brothers who shared his chest. All four of the men's smoking pipes were there, a very odd omission if the crew had willingly abandoned ship, as these were light, highly personal items that no sailor would purposely part with. If I'm going to abandon ship, I'm having a fucking cigarette. Four sets of foul weather gear hung by their pegs on the wall. With the rough weather they'd been having, the gear would have seen near constant use. Similarly, no simple deckhand would have had an alternate set. It was unclear whether the ship had ever had a lifeboat, but there was none aboard now, and it would perhaps explain why the port rail had been lifted. That the crew had likely abandoned ship was clear. Why they had left some of their most important personal effects and their waterproof oilskins was not. Nonetheless, the cargo was full of apparently secure, unmolested barrels, and that seemed to exclude piracy. Although they had not yet checked the lazarette, it was still well stocked with provisions. Aliens. It's the only way. (laughs) Aliens. Aliens. Clearly. Ancient aliens. (laughs) Ancient astronauts, Jessica. Either that or a kraken. It's gotta be one of the two. It's the only sensible explanation. The investigation team returned to the Degradia shortly after 4pm. DeVoe made his report to Morehouse, advising regardless of the odd and ambiguous evidence of what had happened to the crew of the other ship, that they should take her in as salvage. Morehouse was reluctant, on the grounds that they were already working with an extremely small crew, and splitting themselves up over two vessels would mean precious little rest over the next two weeks and possible danger if the weather took took a sudden turn. (laughs) I object on the grounds that it's spooky as fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That shit haunted. (laughs) Is that a reason? Yeah, well, the thing is, like, the the, the people on the Degradia, they're just like, ah, weird. (laughs) (laughs) Nonetheless, a salvage prize was a tempting offer. Even though the lion's share would go to the Degradia's owner, each man could expect several hundred dollars apiece. Morehouse turned the question to the rest of the crew, who all unanimously voted that they should attempt to take the Mary Celeste to Gibraltar. Money! Money, money, money! I mean, like, the companies back in the day were sort of tired of losing ships, so that's exactly what they would do. They would offer a salvage price. It was cheaper for them to offer basically a, a ransom amount for their abandoned ships than to start from scratch every time somebody got spooked. And it's dangerous to take these ships in. You kind of have to offer people money for it. <laughs> also, these people are not well paid. No. <laughs> in general. Like, this is a very risky business. The reason why all these crews are short-staffed is because it's a way of saving money. And, I mean, everybody dies. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a very risky, it's not super profitable, everybody fucking dies. It's people, people tend to get out of the business as soon as they can. DeVoe took two of the best sailors from the crew, Charles Lund and Augustus Anderson, as well as a lifeboat, a few key navigational tools, and some provisions. According to a much later account by Mrs. Morehouse, the De Gradia then made a search for the Mary Celeste lifeboat. Captain Morehouse himself, however, did not mention any search during the later investigation, 
and was likely aware that if the Mary Celeste crew had indeed abandoned ship 10 days before, then the window where they could have made it to shore or been picked up by a passing vessel had likely already closed. Mm. DeVoe's skeleton crew made basic repairs to the rigging and pumped out the bilge. When Morehouse checked in around 10 p.m., DeVoe reported that they had emptied the hold but requested that the other ship stay close during the night just in case. By midnight, they had set up a few new sails, and they were on their way. The two ships stayed together over the course of the next several days until December 11th, when they were separated by a storm that blew up within sight of the coast of Morocco. Nonetheless, both ships arrived unharmed in Gibraltar, the De Gradia on the afternoon of the 12th, the Mary Celeste on the morning of the 13th. DeVoe was gaunt and fatigued, but both sides of the crew were safe. Which sort of says a lot about how unusual it is that this ship was abandoned. Because it was it was abandoned for what appears to be ten days, which is, again, this is a big wooden bathtub floating unattended in the Atlantic. A lot can happen to it. They were able to get it seaworthy within a pretty quick turnaround period. Less than twelve hours. That's fast. These Nothing happens that fast in these boats. So there's really nothing wrong with it, and they're able to safely navigate it not only back to port, but through a storm. Also, most of the damage on it is explainable about by having been unattended for ten days. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is basically a ship in pristine condition. Real, like, you would not expect a normal salvageable vessel for three people to be able to get it back. Never mind to take it, like, hundreds of miles. It makes it much weirder that it was abandoned. There was very, initially very little interest in the news of the Mary Celeste recovery. Bluntly, abandoned ships were not an uncommon occurrence, to the point that during one seven-year period in the 19th century, at least 1,628 derelicts were found floating on the Atlantic, according to the American Hydrographic Record. And that's just the ones that didn't sink. There were some small rumblings among circles familiar with Captain Briggs, if only because he was so well-respected as a sailor. It's not that interesting. You're you're hauling a you're hauling a boat back to shore so it can be put back into service. Like this is not that exciting. No, like oh, you found an abandoned boat. All right. <laughs> Interest would quickly pick up, however, once the local British Attorney General Frederick Solly Flood got his hands on the case. The strange inconsistencies in the in the state of the Mary Celeste that Devoe had dismissed as merely odd in the eyes of Flood became something altogether more sinister. While the judge at the hearing gave fulsome consideration to the overwhelmingly likely possibility that the crew had just been lost in a storm, Flood seemed eager to find any speck of malice or foul play, and his suspicion quickly turned on the salvaging crew themselves. Uh, But to be clear, when a group of men comes to you with valuables of several missing people, asking for a reward for their retrieval, it is not exactly unhealthy to ask whether or not they might have had anything to do with the disappearance. But God, the amount of effort it would take to board a live ship, I guess murder the crew so you can take a salvage fee, it's not worth your time. <laughs> no, it's not worth the money and it's very dangerous. Also, like, <laughs> they're two brigantines. They're the same size of crew. <laughs> well, it's, and salvage is dangerous at the best of times. You're, you're driving a ship with maybe mechanical issues or some kind of failure back to port. It's dangerous and on half a crew. On both ships. Mm-hmm. It's even more dangerous when you've got to murder the crew that's already on it. <laughs> we'll go through most of the theories later, but like, it's 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 not a smart 
plan. It's not a, it's not a good it's not a good crime. No, no, it's 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 not worth your uh, the return. Like the reason why Devoe doesn't think like what if they think we did it is because it's a fucking stupid idea. No, it's <laughs> it's like you know killing nine people in order to salvage a Honda Civic. Like it's not. No, this is not worth the payoff. Even back in the 1800s, a couple hundred bucks each is not worth murdering nine people over. <laughs> and a cat. And a baby. <laughs> no. it's it, You don't have the staff. It's... No. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Hate it when Attorney... I can't get my staff to full murdering capacity. Attorney General Flood, however, was not so much healthily open to the idea as an active advocate for it, determined to find evidence that might fit his existing suspicions. All indications to the contrary be damned. This dragged proceedings out considerably and is likely why the crew got a far lower salvage reward than would be normally expected. Nonetheless, they should perhaps simply have been grateful not to have been charged with anything from insurance fraud to murder, given the tone of the proceedings. They, like, went to all this risk in order to salvage a boat which, like, they didn't, the captain didn't even want to do. And it turns into this big legal battle where they have to prove they didn't just straight up murder a bunch of people. Flood was so belligerent towards every witness that when James Winchester made the crossing from New York to testify in person, it led to an exchange where Flood asked, Of what descent are you? And Winchester responded, Ooh. British, sir. But if I knew where the British blood was, I would open my veins and let it out. Jesus. What a good insult that is, though. Holy shit. Oh, it is, right? It's raw. That is... Ooh. Winchester was quick to leave Gibraltar, in part to deal with other business, but also because he suspected that Flood might very well have him arrested on some trumped-up charge should he stay. It seems like a reasonable assumption. Like, he's like this 70-something, really aggressive British attorney. And he doesn't seem particularly slowed down by facts. He's also got clearly nothing else to do. Like, this is... <laughs> this this is a lot of effort to put into, like, what amounts to a very small crime. Flood is likely to have leaked the details of many of his most profoundly paranoid theories to the press while proceedings were still ongoing, uh, largely as a, as a kind of, like, preemptive PR for himself, uh, leading to the rapid spread of misinformation about the case. Uh, as public interest swelled, newspapers began printing any and all information they could, regardless of providence or inconsistencies between different accounts. Many reported that the Mary Celeste had not been through any serious heavy, heavy weather, including the blatantly false detail that nothing had been knocked over, including a spool standing upright on a table. Others reported that the entire ship had been ransacked, and even that the crew had certainly been the victims of pirates. Not exactly a major problem off the coast of Portugal in the 1870s. Likewise, much attention was given to the theory that the foreign crew may have mutinied. Though the question of where they had gone after was often answered with bizarre and fanciful possibilities. Right. They're, also, they're, they're German. They're not fucking cannibals. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, wow, that is some... That is some Xenophobia uh, toward a different type of blonde person. Beautiful. But uh, <laughs> that's the thing is like there's no there's no way that it makes sense for this to be a crime because the effort involved in any of this is way past the payoff. Even if you were to mutiny, 
you're too far from shore to make it safely back in the lifeboat. Also, why if they not- had mutinied, why wouldn't they have taken their shit? And why wouldn't they have taken the boat? <laughs> right, like, who mutinies? And then it's just like, okay, cool, I didn't want this boat anyway, bye. Like, what? <laughs> that completely undermines the whole point. Also, like, mutinies tend to happen in some very specific circumstances. Normally, it is due when either when the, the crew is non-consensual, such as prison, slave ships, and impressment, <laughs> or it is very, very long periods at sea in an overcrowded vessel. In this case, this was a perfectly consensual arrangement. They were working under normal conditions. They were all being paid. And <laughs> there's like a child on board. Like these are not, and, and they've only been at sea for three weeks. <laughs> this is this is a relatively for the time quick jaunt across the Atlantic where everything's going as planned and everybody's paid to be yeah. there. It doesn't make any sense for anybody to. And the Germans are getting off at the other end to go to Germany. <laughs> yeah, like they want to get to their des. Everybody on this ship wants to get to their destination as planned. Nobody really has an incentive to fuck that up for everybody. No. Like, they, they, everybody wants to go to Europe. <laughs> Mutinies only make sense if, like... Maybe not the baby. You're getting something out of it. A change in leadership, different decisions. And they're also, like, not far from their destination. Even mutineers can hang on. Like, it's... Yeah, like, oh, wait a week? <laughs> they appreciate timing. It's A, a mutiny is a big big risk yeah like oh let's have a violent insurrection rather than just like holding tight for a couple weeks like why why it doesn't make (laughs) any sense what's the motive here also where did they go (laughs) yeah that's the thing is like even if if any kind of violent struggle there's no reason to leave a seaworthy ship nobody's like going to go sulk in a dinghy for a while like it, it doesn't make any sense and it doesn't make any sense for the other crew to be involved in this because, A, they had no way of knowing they were going to come across another ship. There's no part of this that's like a smoking gun. This is clearly just one bored man with a fixation because it doesn't make any sense as a crime. And, like, every everyone would know that they would have to go in front of a, a hearing. <laughs> they would all know that before they did this. Their salvage hearings are well known. They knew they were going to go in front of a judge. And they're pretty routine. It's like... It's like, okay, cool, we found this boat abandoned, and the judge is like, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. These are normally not a huge deal. Boats run aground and get abandoned all the time. A surveyor's report on the Mary Celeste found additional details. Namely, two long, narrow symmetrical cuts on both the port and starboard hull, a few feet above the waterline. Likewise, they found what they thought was an axe mark and blood on the starboard rail. A few specks of blood on the deck and a sheathed ornamental sword beneath the captain's bed that had what the investigator's report characterized as the traces of blood that had been partially wiped off the blade. Later tests determined that none of these traces were in fact blood, and that the sword was instead stained by a small amount of crystallized iron citrate. Interesting. I don't know what that would have come from. I guess just natural rust? I have no idea. Yeah, probably rust. (laughs) It's just the captain's nerd sword under his bed. It has no functional purpose. It also seems like it would not be that unusual to have small amounts of blood on the deck of a 19th century tall ship. It's a brutal working environment. And like what they're describing is not a lot of blood. (laughs) Not especially not if you had, I don't know, 
murdered several people. <laughs> yeah, it seems like that's harder to clean up in a hurry. Like, mm. yeah, and like to be, to be clear, like, uh, like this is like about a couple decades before the Sherlock Holmes stories, but like we do have enough forensics available at this time that we while we can't tell if this is human blood we can tell whether or not it's blood i do just like love this idea that like the captain must have murdered them all with his ornamental nerd sword uh yeah one person suggests that later and then he has to apologize to the family (laughs) because what the hell (laughs) yeah they're like he did it in a fit of religious mania and then the family's like uh excuse us No, he did not use his decorative anime con katana to kill an entire crew. <laughs> no. <laughs> Including his wife and child. Yeah, no, the bar for that's pretty high. <laughs> like, also, like, he was religious. He wasn't crazy. <laughs> no. You can't just... How religious do you have to be, though, that other people suspect you of being a religious maniac in the late 1800s? Like... I just don't see the connection between I don't drink and um, we all need to die in religious fervor. Like, mm, there's there's some steps. <laughs> it's a bit of a leap. Also, notoriously not a violent man. <laughs> yeah, and also, like, I feel like having no alcohol in a ship would not make it more violent. I feel like it's usually the opposite. Uh, but that analysis, this forensic analysis, was held back by Flood for over a week because it doesn't support his case. He's a lunatic. He personally forwarded the theory that the crew may have got at the alcohol and affected a mutiny, though considering said alcohol was foul-smelling and dangerously poisonous, that seems unlikely. <laughs> how how bad does your life have to be before you crack open the denatured medical alcohol? He came to this conclusion despite no thorough inspection of the cargo apparently having been done. It was only later when the ship was released and the cargo was finally delivered that its receivers reported that nine barrels out of 1,701 were empty, which was not an abnormal amount of loss on such a long, rough overseas voyage. No. They made no report as to whether the barrels had cracked, seeped, or been emptied, but that probably indicates that they didn't find their physical state in any way unusual. No, and, like, again, this stuff is basically floor cleaner. The odds that somebody would, like, yeah, let's drink nine barrels of this. Like, that seems... That's a barrel of man. That's a lot of floor cleaner it's a to lot. drink in three weeks. It's it's a lot. Yeah, like, each of those barrels, that's 450 gallons of alcohol <laughs> in three weeks. It's a Even lot. Even for sailors, that's Even a lot. Even if it wasn't dangerously poisonous. <laughs> Like, spread that over eight people, nine if the wife gets in on it, ten if the baby's involved, (laughs) eleven if the cat feels like it. (laughs) (laughs) The cat and the baby are just, like, doing their fair share. (laughs) It's just a lot of alcohol, and it's not that kind of alcohol. (laughs) I mean, that's a lot of distilled spirits for one voice. Even, Even drinking, like, I know that they liked their alcohol back then, but this is, like, if you live somewhere where Everclear's legal and you've ever had just a shot of it, it's not pleasant. Here, Here's the thing. Here's the thing. If it were, we were just talking about water, like we're just talking about water. That's a lot of water to consume in three weeks. I, I You'd be pissing. <laughs> like, a gallon is a milk jug, right? It's a large milk jug. <laughs> and if you're splitting that over nine people and you have... 450 gallons that is 50 gallons of person and <laughs> i di- i 
I just, I just, I can't. I try to get my eight glasses a day, and I don't think I could put away. <laughs> no, because like, if, you, if you're drinking, if you're drinking it every day, that's two point three gallons a day. Two point four if you're rounding up. It's a lot. <laughs> there comes a point where that much water will kill you. <laughs> yeah, like you're gonna die of water poisoning before you <laughs> die of anything else. <laughs> Which is which is a feat, but it, it, certainly that's 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 up there for. But but I but the attorney general investigating the case suggested that, in all seriousness, that this was a drunken thing, which doesn't give you a ton of faith in his understanding of the facts of the of the of the of the of the situation. Oh, it would be so like the thought of drinking that much water is disgusting. Even if they shared one barrel, like the thought of drinking any amount of this stuff is just disgusting. <laughs> You could kill yourself drinking a glass of this shit. <laughs> Depending on what they had on board, yeah. Well, you could kill yourself huffing too much of it. Because I don't know if they denatured alcohol the same way back then that they do now. Because methanol is nasty shit. You can tolerate small amounts of it, but... Mm, I, don't, I don't know that anybody wants to be drunk that bad. <laughs> to power through this. Finally, the American consul in Gibraltar, Horatio Jones Sprague, successfully entreated American naval investigator Captain R.W. Schufelt to intervene with his own review of the facts. Schufelt concluded that the ship had been prematurely abandoned in some kind of panic. He likewise forwarded that the damage to the bow were not man-made cuts, but natural, superficial damage common to new planks after they were stressed and exposed to the sea. Though Sprague forwarded Schufelt's report, it was not entered into the court record. Eventually, it was leaked to the press, likely by Sprague himself. Flood could not fit the available information into a single, comprehensive theory. And finally, in late February, the hearing was resolved. Without grounds for a criminal trial, the judge had really one option to punish the salvagers, which was to vastly undervalue the Mary Celeste at only a fraction of her true worth, and awarded the crew of the De Gradia only 18% of the combined value of the ship and her cargo where the norm would have been anywhere from 30 to 50%. Oh, I'd be pissed. <laughs> Further, the cost of the, of the court's additional surveys and reports were taken out of the final award amount. Like, what? They're just punishing these people for trying to yeah. do the... They did a good thing. They did the right thing in the circumstance at great personal stress and risk. Because that's just it. Like, otherwise, we never would have known. We never would have known what became of this ship. It would have just been like... It would have been okay, lost at sea. the ship was lost at sea, and that's the end of the story. While it was never outright stated, the judge insinuated in his ruling that there was something suspect or insufficient in the crew's actions, which led to suspicion of far more sinister crimes on their part in the court of public opinion. The ship was released to its owners, although its new captain struggled to find a crew willing <laughs> Yeah, because they think it's cursed. <laughs> They're like, nope, bad juju. <laughs> I was like, I don't blame them for that one. Yeah, either it's cursed or there's something... You would assume that there was something structurally wrong with the boat, right? Right. Even if it's not cursed, there might be something wrong with it. Yeah, I can still see. There's, they're a superstitious bunch. This is a bunch of people who don't think that you should ever rename a ship. So I can see why uh, they don't... Uh... They don't feel real comfortable getting back on board. They're in a very dangerous position. Like, that leads to a lot of superstitious thinking on the part of human beings. Like, when you have this little control of your life and danger is at any corner, that leads to magical thinking. 
people people develop superstitions around if their hockey team loses. So imagine just being like at the mercy of the sea. You get real superstitious real quick. As an aside, during the hearings into Briggs' disappearance, his brother Oliver, who was at sea and had yet to hear the news, ran into rough water in the Bay of Biscay on January 8th. They tried to pump out the bilge, but the works got stopped up from their load of coal, and the boat capsized. Oliver Briggs survived with one other sailor, his second mate Perry, clinging to a deckhouse that had broken off the ship for four days. When Perry was rescued by a passing ship, he informed them that the captain had given up and let go of the deckhouse only two hours before, slipping below the water to his death. That's good and traumatic. Meaning that James was the only remaining brother Briggs. Ooh. Not a lucky family. No, they lost five of six children. Shit. That's why you had to have six. You needed the backups. You you needed to hedge. (laughs) You needed a backup child or five. (laughs) Just in case. You need spares. I'd like to now go into some of the most relevant theories. The first being bad weather. That is the theory that DeVoe had, but it's very unlikely. Like, the water was rough, but the captain and crew were too experienced and it would have been safer in the boat. That's the end of that theory. It's just super unlikely (laughs) that they would have been that spooked by bad weather that they would have gotten to a yawl, which was a worse option. That's just it. If, if If the weather's too rough for the big boat, it's too rough for the little boat. That's... Second option is insurance fraud. But that is, first of all, super out of character for Briggs. He was close to his family. Why risk Sarah and Sophie? And why leave Arthur behind? It's not worth the money, especially because Briggs was a partial owner of the boat and would have had to have paid himself off. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't make a ton of sense. Making this especially stupid. Like, the owner pays the salvage fee. (laughs) Yeah, And like, yeah, you get money from the insurer, but like, that doesn't make any sense. (laughs) No, because his own insurance premiums are going to go up. And also, he never gets any of the money. He he disappears. You've got to reappear to commit insurance fraud. Yeah. Otherwise, you're just inconveniencing people for no reason. And this this goes to a- there's there's a little secondary theory that like, this was in collaboration with the De Gradia, but they would have needed to comprehensively fake both of their logs- And it would have been hard to convince the rest of the crew, who Briggs didn't really know, other than his first mate. So he has to convince six other people that this is a good idea. And there's no sign of a struggle. Let's all commit insurance fraud and never see our families again is a tough sell. Like, the, one of the, the two German brothers, one of them left a wife and a child, the other one left a fiancé. Uh, one of the other crewmen was a near, newlywed, a lot of people have to decide that they're cool giving up their entire lives. And they get nothing out of it. None, none of them got any money. There's there's easier ways to commit insurance fraud. They could have just sunk the boat off the coast and gone like closer to the coast. This makes no sense. And it doesn't make sense to abandon the boat there. You want to be able to get to shore. Yeah, you don't want to die committing insurance fraud. That's not a, that's not a crime. That's a suicide. <laughs> Third possibility. That the Degradia crew murdered them. Couple problems with that. If it was A, premeditated, one, they're the same size, they have the same size of crew, doesn't make sense to try to take them on. It's a fair fight, and they've got a sword. (laughs) 
Yeah. Two, they left later. And three, they're too fucking slow to catch up. None of this makes any sense. B, that it was a crime of opportunity. This assumes that they would have already been in some form of distress. Some form of crisis, which also needs to be explained. Because there's nothing wrong with the boat. <laughs> uh, if they were becalmed, uh, if they had suddenly run out of sail and just been, like, stranded, both of these are sail-powered vessels. <laughs> if one of them is becalmed, both of them are becalmed, and the Degradia cannot catch up. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you would again have to fake both logs, and they probably would have come up with a better, less suspicious fake story. <laughs> yeah, there's... It, it doesn't... It's not very convincing. You're not trying to get away with anything. No. So four, we have mutiny. Again, there is no violence. There is no alcohol. The crew is never heard from again. The crew was consensual. Everyone wanted to go to Europe. The crew conditions were normal, and they left all their personal effects. Not a mutiny. Doesn't make any sense. No, so none of Flood's suggested outcomes make a lick of sense. But that brings us to Schufelt's suggestion. Panicked abandonment. Which is also confusing, for the same reason as the bad weather example. So one suggestion was that maybe the ship had become becalmed, and started to drift near rocks or a reef. This would be a boat that has no sail power. They've, they've run out of wind. Yeah, this would be, there's no wind. If they had run out of wind, wouldn't they have had all the sails up? <laughs> yeah, that'd be, their first, that'd be your first attempt. And why would you have left the boat in such a panic that you would forgot to lash the wheel? Yeah, the whole thing is that being becalmed gives you a lot of time to think. How fast are you leisurely drifting on a windless day towards danger that you freak out and leave the boat? Also, again, your odds, like, the wind can come back. It's not really a reason. It's not like you're permanently stuck. Um, also, it's a tough little boat. You would have to hit the reef hard. And if there's no wind, you're not going to fare any better in a sail dinghy than in a big boat with sails. It's not... You're not improving your situation. <laughs> and even if you hit the reef and you start taking on water, get in the dinghy then. <laughs> but they hadn't. There was no, like, obvious hull damage. There's, there's nothing wrong with the boat. So the idea here is that they all get into the dinghy, and then, like, the wind picks up and it takes the boat away faster than they can get, catch up to it. But it doesn't make sense to do that in the first place. But then we have freak weather conditions. So this is the idea that some kind of freak weather occurrence panicked the crew. Uh, specifically, what is often suggested is a water spout. Basically, think of it as, like, a water tornado. It is a non-supercell tornado or wind funnel uh, that occurs over the water. The suggestion here is not that they saw a water tornado and freaked out and left. The suggestion here is that it gave them a bad water reading due to the change in the barometric pressure that look, made it look like they were taking on way more water way faster than they actually were. But there's a pro couple problems with that. Namely, if the, the reading says they're taking on so much water so fast, couldn't they just check in the hold? Uh, couldn't they just look off the boat and notice that they're not sinking? This also, like, wouldn't be, you know, water spouts sound extreme, but they're, they're not that unusual. 
And like every every sailor would have experience with things malfunctioning. They would know to double check things. Yeah, like it only makes sense if there's a bunch they're a bunch of panicky idiots, which by all estimation they're not. Captain Briggs was very well respected and a not- notably calm, collected man. These theories only work if you assume this whole like ship is staffed by like skittish deer and middle school girls. Like it doesn't make any <laughs> sense. Like these these are hardened men of the sea. <laughs> <laughs> is is the three-year-old girl making all of the sailing decisions? Like it doesn't fit. <laughs> Did they let her be yeah, captain? Like, is that how this happened? <laughs> like is the cat making the decisions? It was take your daughter to work day. <laughs> <laughs> like none of this makes any and We got too into it. <laughs> these theories all depend on the crew just basically not knowing how to boat. Captain Briggs had been sailing since he was a teenager. He knows boats. He's seen it all. Even if the boat is taking on a lot of water, there's a lot of shit you do well before you get off the boat. There's steps. There's procedure. The next idea is that they left the boat due to problems with the cargo. This is the most likely. We, we mentioned earlier that you have evaporation. Right. And evaporation is a problem. Generally speaking, what you would do, and what the De Gradia had do- done with their petroleum, was to be to open the hatches every once in a while to allow the gas to escape. Boat fart. But because it had been such a stormy season, they often had had to keep all the hatches buttoned tightly. Now, this not only causes an ungodly smell, <laughs> but it also would have caused grumbling. Boat fart. And potentially a fire hazard. But the the Mary Celeste didn't just have normal evaporation and normal gas issues. They had nine barrels cracked in the hold, which again is 450 gallons. That's a lot. It also would have been hard to pump the alcohol out of the hold because it's very, very light. And any pumping they would have done would have removed water first. And the alcohol would have floated on top if it hadn't all simply evaporated slowly over time. So when we say they had limited venting opportunities, the 24th was one of the first days they'd had that had been relatively calm. And similarly, we have several open hatches and doors, as well as the open sounding pipes, which might not have been purely to check the water in the hold, but might have been as another way of letting gas out. And indeed, the vlog of the Mary Celeste, which has since been lost, uh, mentioned several times rumbling in the hold. This led to a theory that has some weight behind it, but is still somewhat confusing. Namely, that there was some kind of explosion, or at the very least, a fear of an explosion. Either because someone had gone down into the hold while smoking, or because of the simple flammability of the situation. Now, there's two possibilities here. One, that there was an explosion, which caused people to hurt panically abandon ship, or they had simply moved to the yawl as a temporary safety measure and had been waiting at a distance to see if it was going to explode. Now, there are a couple problems even with this. One, there was no notable fire damage. And even if the ship had exploded in the hull, hull it still would have been probably safer on the boat. <laughs> It Even really if she had blown her timbers. <laughs> it's really unsafe to be in a dinghy in the ocean. We really can't emphasize this enough. So we don't have fire damage. There's some indication that like you could have like a very spectacular looking woof of fire 
that wouldn't leave a lot of damage. There have been some experiments that show that. But again, it's not the most likely scenario. But then we have the idea that what if there wasn't a crisis? What if they weren't in a panic? What if they didn't think anything was wrong? And what if the reason why they moved to the Yawl was not as a way of escaping the ship, but as a temporary measure? What if the reason they left all their belongings, all their important items, all their wet weather gears, all their pipes, was because they thought they were coming back? Well, it's the only thing that makes sense. If you think the boat's going to explode, you're taking your pipe. (laughs) You're going to have a smoke as you watch that fucker burn. Maybe the reason why you don't bring your pipe is because you know there's a lot of alcohol fumes. True. And you think you're going to be right back. So this is the last theory. Let's look at the the fume idea again. And rather than going to, like, this idea that there was a big alcohol explosion that panicked the crew... Rather, or the risk of a big alcohol explosion. Let's take a step back from that. You have 450 gallons of steadily evaporating alcohol in your hold. How does that fucking smell? <laughs> Heinous. Like, hard to describe. Heinous. Just open containers of nail polish remover and floor cleaner. It stinks to high heaven. And you're probably gonna feel fucking sick. Methanol poisoning which I think is the most relevant here, is even inhalation can be very dangerous. But even if you are not inhaling a dangerous amount, it's going to make you very ill. Nausea, dizziness. You're definitely not going to be carrying your pipe around with you because you're worried about setting it off. And you're probably going to be too nauseous to get all the way up into the high rattlings to climb up and get down all of the sails, as you probably should for safety reasons. It's probably even dangerous for you to climb up that high. And the furled sail was one of the highest on the ship, and the hardest to get to. It also maybe explains why you are not as careful as you should be, because you're in such a hurry to get off the boat. Because if you don't think that the ship is in any danger, and the only people who are in any danger are the crew then the most reasonable thing to do on a the first bright sunny day you've encountered, or even just gray day without a lot of wind that you've encountered, is to open up all the hatches. But because there's no wind, there's nothing to blow away the fumes. So a reasonable person might in this situation decide, okay, let's get everyone in the yawl, let's wait with a tow rope a ways away, let's let the fumes get out of the boat, let's air it out, and we'll just wait, and we'll come back once it's done. Because it would have been unbearable. It's like you're you're carrying industrial chemicals, which are, and they evaporate quickly. And if you're worried about the baby. Well, yeah, and your wife is on board, you don't want her breathing that shit, and no one's having a good time. We'll just, we'll just have an afternoon in the y'all. One of the ropes they found snapped and that the DeVoe crew had repaired, because they noted there, there hadn't been an obvious tow rope, which is why they had dismissed the idea that they had just been like, hanging off of the boat at a distance. But the main halyard had been snapped. And the main halyard is a very, very thick rope. It's the thickest rope on the ship. It's three inches thick. It's a big boy. It's a big boy. Now, while most of the Mary Celeste rigging had been replaced, the main halyard had not. It was still old rope. Rope doesn't age well. And rope, it goes through, especially the main halyard, goes through a lot of wear and tear. This was probably a very old rope, and it had not been one of the ones replaced. 
The captain decides, because there's not a lot of wind, because it's one of the first days without rain, he decides to air out the ship. But he's worried about his wife, he's worried about his child, and everyone is nauseous. They forget to lash the ship's wheel. They neglect to furl the last of the sails because there's no wind and it's really dangerous getting up the riggings while they're this nauseous. They all get into the boat with the main halyard as their tow rope. They could have been there an hour or several hours, but suddenly the wind picks up. They try to pull themselves back to the boat, and the main halyard snaps. And they sit there with no provisions, with no wet weather gear, in the middle of the Atlantic, and they watch their boat sail away without them. Oof. Which I think is honestly scary. Oh, it's terrifying. It's absolutely like horrifying, because the other theories kind of suggest, you know, like a panic, like a quick end to things. But this would have been a long process. You're going to die from some combination of dehydration or exposure. With a baby on board. Oof. And possibly a cat. And possibly. <laughs> we don't know if they brought the cat. Um, we, we don't know. The cat was never found on board. There's nothing you can do. Like you just you just have to decide if you're gonna if you're gonna throw yourself out or you're gonna sit and wait for dehydration and exposure to take you. Like there's no good options here. It's nightmarish because like things like pirates and mutinies they have a certain romance to them. We're distanced from them. But if this was just a completely avoidable, understandable accident, fuck. <laughs> I mean, they don't have proper ventilation for a dangerous cargo. And so they take a risk. One that didn't feel like a risk. No. No, and this is this is why it's so we've been saying the whole time, don't leave the boat. Don't leave the boat. This is this is not a simple matter of like jumping overboard and swimming back to the boat. You can't get yourself back up. Well, one of the comparisons used by my main source was of um what happens when you harpoon a whale. So you get on this little dinghy, you harpoon a whale, and the whale's first instinct is to swim away. And you just end up skidding on top of the water, getting dragged behind it. Like, how are you supposed to haul yourself back in that situation? Oh, there's, there's no doing it. And there's nobody on the ship to throw you a rope. Like, there's nobody... And it's the only thing that explains why they didn't leave somebody on the boat to mind it. Yeah, it was just so, so unbearable that they had to... And they, and they didn't see it as a big deal. They were like, all right, we'll get in the y'all. We'll have a grand old time for a couple hours or whatever it was, even an hour. We'll just wait it out. We don't know how how quickly things might have gone south for them. But the weather can change so quickly on the open ocean. Mm. So quickly. It's such a rookie mistake. Don't leave the boat. Don't leave the boat. But it's the kind of mistake that's incredibly understandable, and all it would take is a moment. Yeah, it just takes, like, you know, if you're feeling nauseous and lightheaded and dizzy, and you're basically, like, <laughs> wafting around in the vapors of, like, floor cleaner... It's understandable that you just need a break from that. You just need to, like, get away from it, let the boat vent out, and then you're going to come straight back. Like, it's... You're not gone long. It doesn't seem like a huge deal. Yeah, like, they would have taken way more precautions if they were actually abandoning the boat. But they didn't think they were. So they weren't as careful as they should have been. Ugh. Ugh, it's... Nightmarish. It's nightmarish. 
Well, and I think this is why people are so drawn to conspiracy theories in a lot of cases. They're actually less upsetting. <laughs> they are less upsetting. The, the idea that they were abducted by aliens or the idea that they that they faked their own deaths and started a new life somewhere, that they were committing insurance fraud, even that they were taken by pirates. Like, these are all less... There's some glamour to them. The idea that they just sat in a boat and looked at each other until they all started to die... That's such a horrific end. <laughs> it's a nightmare. Well, a lot of conspiracy theories around major historical events are sort of born out of an inability to grasp or an unwillingness to grapple with how horrifying they are. Yeah, or the disproportionality of them. Well, yeah, people claim that the Sandy Hook shooting didn't happen. It's because the reality of, like, six-year-olds got shot to death for no reason. Like, that's a hard thing to grapple with. You know, the idea that a very important person could just be shot by a random dude with a gun who just felt like it, that makes us feel very unsafe. So the idea that a boat full of people could have just made, like, a single mistake and then they all fucking died, <laughs> like, that's upsetting. Well, that's just it. Like, we need we need things to happen for a reason. It's very hard for us to wrap our minds around. Sometimes people just make a shitty mistake and it leads to this long, prolonged, painful death. That's not great. Uh, like, literally anything else, please? You know? That's... Mm -hmm. We like things to have purpose. We like them to be intentional. We like them to happen for a reason. Or, or at the very least, for dramatic events to have dramatic rationales. Yeah, the, they, the boat disappeared because they were committing insurance fraud. Like, there's a purpose to it, but just, like, they made a stupid mistake while they were breathing in vapor fumes, and then it killed all of them. Like, that's not- I don't like that. I don't want that. No. But that's also, like, very common industrial accidents. <laughs> but it's not a good story. <laughs> it's not. It's a, it's a bad story. But in that vein, let's talk about those stories. Like, theories of strange and inexplicable happenings did not die with the hearing. Rather, year after year, they only became more fanciful. In the decades that followed, the story of the Mary Celeste became heavily mythologized, with details of various fictionalized accounts becoming steadily intermixed with the true facts. In 1883, the Los Angeles Times retelling claimed that the sails were all set, the tiller lashed, a fire burning in the galley, and the table set with not-yet-cold dinner. One notable short story, J. Habakkuk Jepson's Statement, was published in January 1884 in Cornhill Magazine, anonymously authored by a young ship surgeon named Arthur Conan Doyle. Hmm. In the story, Jefferson is a doctor, abolitionist, and passenger aboard the Mary Celeste, whose white captain and crew are murdered by black mutineers. Oh. Led by a villainous mulatto mass murderer named Septimius Goring, dedicated oh, no. to destroying the white race. Oh no. As this was fiction... Doyle changed numerous details, including names, dates, the number of the crew, and the exact origin and destination of the voyage. As someone who had been fascinated with the case for years, he was most certainly familiar enough with the official version of events to get the names right. This version, though never intended to be serious, colored the public's perception of the affair to the point that other supposedly factual accounts often used Doyle's alternative spelling of the ship's name, which changed Mary to Marie and included oh. the entirely false detail that the lifeboats were still on the ship. Oh. 
It was taken so seriously, in fact, that both Attorney General Flood and American Consul Sprague felt the need to respond to it, thinking it was some kind of brazen hoax rather than literature. Doyle's account sparked new interest in the case, as well as spurring any number of copycat fabricators. You just gotta make it different enough. <laughs> That's That yeah. was not insufficient. <laughs> I, th I think he should probably give it a much different name. <laughs> yeah, go big or go home, dude. A lot of people took this very seriously. And it was... It, it was a short story. <laughs> it was fake. There was not a single black person on the ship. It was, it was <laughs> fake. It was meant to be fake. There, there wasn't some kind of, like, villainous black supremacist killing all the white people on board, okay? <laughs> it's, it's pretty much never how it goes. <laughs> that's kind of... That's, that's not Historically, a thing. it's been more the opposite. Um... Like, here's the thing. There have been cases where the black people on a vessel freaked out and murdered all the white people. Those are slave ships. Um, those are slave ships. Yeah. In November 1906, the Overland Monthly and Out West magazine published an account that claimed the Mary Celeste had been found near the Cape Verde Islands, an entirely different Portuguese-controlled island chain off the coast of West Africa, which is around 1,400 nautical miles or 2,600 kilometers south of the ship's actual position. It likewise recorded that the first mate's name was Briggs and that there were live chickens on board. Well, that's a fun detail. Not true, but fun detail. C completely incorrect, but okay. Uh, in 1913, The Strand magazine published an apparently serious survivor's account by Abel Fostick, who claimed to be the Mary Celeste steward, rather than Edward, <laughs> William Head. They just didn't fact check this at all? They were like, oh yeah, you know that shipwreck that nobody survived? Here you go. <laughs> Even though we have the ship manifest. Uh, the story had numerous inaccuracies, including the names of everyone other than the captain, depicting his daughter as seven, and claiming a crew of 13. It likewise demonstrated a clear lack of naval knowledge and a poor understanding of naval terms. Oh, so this guy's, this guy's not even a sailor. Super wrong. In this version, the captain decided to have an impromptu swimming competition in the middle of the Atlantic to prove a point about swimming in clothes to his first mate who had failed to save a man who had fallen in the ocean on a previous voyage. Not a chance. No sailor goes swimming. <laughs> no. Half of them can't even swim. Many, many sailors will actually intentionally not learn how to swim because it's a worse death. Drowning is better than hypothermia. So, like, I have, I have a lot of naval family being from the coast and all, and they don't, they intentionally don't learn how to swim. You want to drown. If, if nobody's in a position to get you a lifeboat or a, a throw you a life preserver, you do not want to tread water until you freeze to death. And that will happen. Uh, when the swimming men are suddenly attacked by sharks, the remaining people on the ship climb onto a temporary platform built on the front of the ship, either to help or get a better look. Then, when the platform collapses under their weight, they all drown or are eaten by sharks themselves. Nope, this is straight nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> like, eaten by sharks during a, an impromptu swimming contest. No. No. Next. Like, like, not, <laughs> only, not only do sharks not really eat people... <laughs> Much less, like, nine of them. Yeah. <laughs> Most shark attacks are the shark randomly biting a person, thinking they're a seal, going, ew, spitting them out, and leaving. An attempt was made. Also, like, it depicts Briggs as, like, an angry, confrontational dude, which he wasn't. Um, but it did get his name right, so that's, that's something. A lot of the other well, don't. 
the points, I guess? Other hoaxes followed, trading false details among themselves. One lurid tale written by Irish writer Lawrence J. Keating claimed to be an account by John Pemberton, which at least is a more realistic name, uh, claiming to be the cook aboard the Mary Celeste. In this version, Captain Morehouse of the- Moorhouse, not Morehouse, Moorhouse, of the Moorhouse. Day Radia, uh, agreed to take on, on some of the Mary Celeste cargo, a combination of lumber and whale oil, and lend her some crew members, planning to meet at the other end of the voyage. Sounds fake immediately, but okay. Immediately. <laughs> like, one, nobody does this. <laughs> this is how they make m- you money. Just, like, you just hire more crew members. Yeah, nobody's like, here, do you want some of my cargo? Like, this stuff is all tracked and insured, and they're under a contract of, to deliver their own shit. Th- this doesn't happen. No. They also calculate, like, ballast according to the cargo they're supposed to be carrying. Boats will take on a strategic amount of water, depending on how much they're... Ca- no, th- this no. is just not... This is not real. That's not a thing. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> aboard the Mary Celeste, the captain goes mad after his wife is crushed to death by her own sur- poorly secured piano... This is wrong for several reasons, but in particular, I will note that Sarah Briggs paid a melodeon, a reed organ, and that it was undamaged. But but crushed to death by a piano is dramatic. I mean, points for creativity on that one. Yeah, I mean, he at least knew that there was a piano-like object. Points. Events spiral upon the ship until only the De Gradia crews and Pemberton are left. Although the names of key crew members and the ship itself were wrong, numerous journalists even tried to get interviews with the entirely fictitious John Pemberton. This account was egregious enough that 60-year-old Arthur Briggs, now a banker, felt the need to denounce it in the Boston Post. He, in fact, still owned his mother's melodeon. (laughs) Interesting. So, no bits of crushed mom on it. No. Also, like, the photo that was supposedly of John Pemberton was Keating's own father. (laughs) But a lot of it's, like, literary people trying to imitate how Arthur Conan Doyle first, like, (laughs) got famous. No, stop it. (laughs) This is kind of what happens when we, like, blur the lines between fiction and nonfiction reporting. Yeah. This. This thing happens. Because, like, Doyle published in a literary magazine... In a literary magazine. Fiction. Very clearly fiction. Fiction. (laughs) All of these other people are depicting themselves as real, trying to ignite the same magic, and failing to understand that Doyle wasn't intending this to be an actual depiction of events at all. No, it's a fictionalized version of things, but the public has historically never been very good at, at dealing with that. Nonetheless, the Keating version heavily influenced a 1935 horror movie, The Mystery of the Mary Celeste, starring Bella Lugosi. Oh, fun! Yeah, I like him. He was very talented. In 1924, the Daily Express, a long-running British tabloid, ran a story with information allegedly provided by the Mary Celeste bosun, which was not a person on this Mary Celeste, they did not have a bosun, uh, claiming that the ship had stumbled upon a deserted steamer. And, after finding a safe full of gold and silver aboard, they split the booty and used the steamer's lifeboats to reach Spain. This is- this is just out of control. (laughs) This is now- for one thing, they're now assuming this, like, skeleton crew of nine people has, like, every conceivable role aboard. We've got pianos and bosons and- and everything. And, like, if they had found a steamer, wouldn't they have just brought it in as salvage? 
Then they yeah, get 50% of the gold and silver and 50% of the worth of the steamer. <laughs> yeah, this makes no and sense And they at don't all. have to fake their deaths. <laughs> <laughs> right, you get money and it's less work. Like, none of this makes any sense. This is what happens when people with no knowledge, no expert knowledge on something insert themselves. Like, with the recent case of, like, if you've been watching the news lately with this, this, uh, Gabby Petito and, um, can't remember the boyfriend's name at the time. Ryan Landry. Ryan Landry, even with these, like, very mundane true crime cases to this day, people will take it and just run with it. They will make up all kinds of stories about these kinds of things. Like, there's nothing else to do at this point in human history except make this shit up. And, like, it's one of those problems that, like, is often described in doctor circles, when it's just, like, when you hear hooves, it's probably horses, not zebras. Yeah, sometimes the simplest explanation is also the most sensical. Not faking your own death to steal pirate gold like none of that is real that's not a, that's not a thing yet another man jacob hamill claimed on his deathbed that he had been one of the de gradia crew who'd climbed aboard the mary celeste found it devastated by smallpox with the only survivors being the captain his wife and the cook who he robbed and threw overboard an odd claim considering that devoe was still very much alive at the time and living under his own name at that Oh, I do love a good deathbed lie. Those are fun. Another sailor claimed to have found a skeleton on St. Paul's Island, holding a message in a bottle which contained a story in a German about a steamer's crew having kidnapped and later killed the crew of a small brigantine. Still, another Greek sailor claimed to have been aboard when the ship was beset by pirates. Hmm. Just, Just people making up lies at this point. Just making shit up. It's very weird to claim that you are one of the men of the De Gradia who climbed aboard the Mary Celeste. That's two people, and we know both of their names. <laughs> That's the thing. We know like, where they this... are. <laughs> They're still alive. Every every aspect of this of these things are tracked very carefully. Ship logs are tracked. Ship passenger lists are tracked. The names of crew are tracked. The cargo they have on board. We know exactly how many barrels this ship had on board because they kept paperwork. This is not the Stone Ages. If you find an unregistered boat, they're probably smuggling shit. (laughs) Yeah, boats are registered. They have a home port. They have a captain. They have crew that are registered to them. They have a particular path that they're going to take. They know what cargo they're picking up where and dropping off where. That cargo is insured. It is accounted for. You can't just, like, show up out of the blue and be like, yo, I was totally the ship cook on this boat. Like, (laughs) we know who was on the boat. It was not you, sir. Sit down. Yeah. You are not Edward William Head. Fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) This is is not like when people were coming out of the woodwork for decades claiming to be Anastasia. Like, we know exactly who these people are. Yeah. Yeah. And you know where they are? They're in fucking Nova Scotia. (laughs) (laughs) Or they're They're dead. They're just some good home Scotian boys. Or they're dead. But we know who they are. Like, DeVoe was like a hometown hero. He was a local celebrity in Nova Scotia. (laughs) I I just love this idea that, like, you're on your deathbed, so you may as well just bring chaos to someone else's life on your way out. (laughs) Like, fuck it. Deathbed lies. It was this assumption on the part of people with very little understanding of the sea that they could just make this shit up because nobody knows. It's like, no, it's just that you don't know. (laughs) Everybody else knows. (laughs) Everybody else knows. Everyone relevant knows. 
it's it's just clout chasing. People will come out of the woodwork. This is why police literally have to hold back certain information from these famous crime cases. I mean, this is today, not in the 1800s. Because crazy people because will have to involve people themselves. Will, people make shit up for no discernible reason. People with nothing to gain. People with everything to lose by claiming to be involved. Like Yeah, like people who have pretended to be part of the 9-11 attacks to have been in the building and they're, they, they were not... Mm. They were in Spain or something. <laughs> People will come forward to say that they, like, they were the murderer. People who've never done a fucking thing wrong in their lives will come forward to be like, yes, I murdered this girl. It's like, you didn't. Why are you making this up? Why you are did you not. You have, you have so many alibis. Shut the fuck up. Right? Like, any, uh, the minute there's, like, any hint of fame surrounding something, people just, like, lose their fucking mind. This, this is even, like, these are, like, the realistic hoaxes. That's not even getting into the paranormal shit. Oh, God. Uh, one of the suggested possibilities, because the Mary Celeste slowly got dragged into the giant nexus of paranoid and paranormal normal thinking, where we, there's Bigfoot and aliens and sea monsters and... Oh, yeah. All the, all the survivors of the Mary Celeste are currently at the Denver airport, naturally. Yeah. So, like, one of the suggestions was this was a sea monster or a giant squid attack. But they tend to hang out in very, very deep ocean. Um, we used to only know of them because, like, of scars on sperm whales and, like, chunks of them we found in, in sperm whale puke. We have only seen it alive once in 2013. But they don't, they, they don't attack people. They live really deep in the ocean. They also just don't want to interact with us. <laughs> They've made it very clear. <laughs> people have been attacked by large octopuses. And, like, to be fair, a large octopus could take a person out. But nine people? But I don't think the rest of the ship's crew is just going to hang out and wait to get picked off. Also, the effort it would take an octopus to climb up the side of a tall ship and kill nine people. Even if they were already on- like, it'd have to be a very determined octopus. And <laughs> what have you done to this octopus? <laughs> yeah, like, the vast majority of people who are injured in interactions with octopus- uh, uh, octopodes, if you prefer, um, because it's not octopi. Ooh. Octopodes comes from a Greek root, so it's octopuses or octopodes. It's not Ooh. octopi. Sorry, I'm getting pedantic here. But like, even if they're on the yawl, the yawl is too big to be get taken out by an octopus. Yeah, no, this is, it, this, the kraken is not a thing. This is not a thing. Giant squid do not attack boats. Uh, no, no. Just, just no. 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 It's not no. how any of this works. E even if it's a sea monster, like, no. <laughs> it's probably not a sea monster. Uh, there's the fit of re religious mania idea that the author then had to apologize to the family for and retracted from a later uh, later version of his book. Um, right. Anime there's, sword, there's religious fervor. Love that. Yeah, there's, there's alien abduction. And, oh. um... Uh, some people even suggested that the members of the ship were victims of the Bermuda Triangle. Oh, that's which, fun. Which would make sense if they were near the Bermuda... Expansive definition of Bermuda Triangle. Yeah. Because we are nowhere near Bermuda. <laughs> no, not even close. Opposite side of the Atlantic, actually. Yeah. So, like, you'll sometimes get, like, these, these like, very big versions of the Bermuda Triangle that are just parallel with the Azores Islands. And it's like, come on, guys. You can't just 
expand the definition of the Bermuda Triangle just so it picks up the Mary Celeste. (laughs) To the Iberian Peninsula? Like, that's just the Atlantic Ocean at this point. Like, it's... Yeah. Also, I think this is important, and it's not really the point, but the Bermuda Triangle is not a notorious... It's notorious, but it's not a notably dangerous area of the ocean. No, it actually doesn't have a significant increase in shipwrecks. No, it does not have a significant, notable increase in shipwrecks. You do not have to pay increased insurance to travel in the area. If it has a lot of notable shipwrecks, it's just because it's a big shipping lane. There's a lot of ships there. <laughs> There's a lot of ships there. And, like, there, there was just, like, a lot of well-publicized cases of disappearances that either got exaggerated or the ship later showed up, but, like, that did not get nearly as much attention. It is, according to all data we have, not a dangerous part of the ocean compared to all the other parts of the ocean. No, it's just, like, it. it's... It's a regular it's a very busy shipping lane because it's it's between the Florida and the Caribbean and that's where we get a lot of the shit we enjoy, sugar, oranges, all of the above, you know, shit we can't grow anywhere mm. else. And also like that's where tropical cyclones tend to hit the hardest is in that like Caribbean Florida area, but that's just it's not mysterious. That's just where storms hit. I don't know. We've known that forever. <laughs> yeah, and most of the most notorious like Bermuda Triangle cases are very similar to the Mary Celeste in the sense that, like, there is a lot of very mundane explanations and a lot of the weirdest woo details are made up. <laughs> yeah, and people people will stretch the definition, like you said, of the Bermuda Triangle to make it fit. But it, it's not... There's, there's no evidence to suggest that that's a particularly dangerous part of the Atlantic Ocean. Lloyd's Shipping Register doesn't seem to think it's dangerous, and they insure all these ships... <laughs> Yeah, and if 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 uh, insurance actuarial statistics don't think something is dangerous, you can you can be you can bet s- on it. They've got yeah. they've got money riding on the on on the problem. They do so. some of the best data science like we know of, so we're good. Yeah, and like we have been tracking every ship that came in and out of the area forever since for centuries, forever centuries. <laughs> like we have data, accurate data. All the way to the 1700s. So don't worry about it. <laughs> You're good. We've we've been shipping shit in and out of the Caribbean forever. They have a lot of stuff we just can't grow anywhere else. There is, however, an odd coda to the theory about insurance fraud. After repossessing the Mary Celeste, Winchester struggled to find a buyer for the ship, which he no longer wanted for a variety of very understandable reasons. He eventually sold her at lost at a loss to Brooklyn business partners Cartwright and Harrison in early 1874. She spent the next while on the West Indies shipping route, often losing money due to rough seas and other misfortune, including an entire shipment of dead horses, but also due to the fact that there was very little money to be made as a small, two-sailed ship anymore. (laughs) hate it when you just show up with a bunch of dead horses. Here you go. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, live horse, (laughs) very valuable. Dead horse, not so much. Literally worthless. (laughs) Actually costs you money to dispose of it. Most people won't even eat them, so no. (laughs) No. no. They got lost lost in South Africa off the Cape. You're not even close to France. (laughs) No, no, those those puppies have been dead for a while. (laughs) Uh, She lost another captain, this time due to illness again, and was eventually sold once more at a loss to a Bostonian consortium headed by Wesley Grove in 1880. 
Finally, in November 1884, in a scheme between a group of Boston shippers and her new captain, Gilman C. Parker, they filled the ship with near-worthless cargo, heavily overinsured her, and on January 3rd, 1885, intentionally drove her into the Rochelet Reef on the coast of Haiti. See, that's how you commit insurance fraud. That's how you do it! <laughs> <laughs> Where it's easy to get to shore! <laughs> and you also, like, over-insured the cargo. Yeah, rather than completely accurately insured it. <laughs> you plan this in advance, you don't just disappear. Parker ordered the crew to cut the masts, then launched the lifeboats and head for shore. There, Parker sold the salvage rights to an agent of the local American consul for $500. This turned out to be a miscalculation, uh, as insurers in America contacted Kingman N. Putnam, a New York marine surveyor who was in Haiti investigating an unrelated naval accident. The consular agent complained to Putnam that he had been cheated. Although he had recovered all of the Mary Celeste cargo, none of it was worth anywhere near $500. Just a load Oof. of old junk. Putnam Oof. opened one of the boxes, shipped as cutlery, and insured for $1,000, which turned out to be full of around $50 worth of dog collars. Cutlery fraud. Ooh. He purchased a few of the cases of cargo from the agent and sent them back to the insurers in the United States. When Putnam returned to Haiti with a subpoena for the agent's testimony and documents, the agent fled, and Putnam had the rest of the salvage cargo seized as evidence. From there, it was easy enough to interview merchants who had sold said cargo to the Mary Celeste and determined that they had purchased an absolutely anomalous amount of rotten fish and watered-down ale. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> don't fuck with insurance. I mean, this was brazen. Don't, this, don't do insurance fraud this way. Yeah, this Something was in dumb. between. Something in between the two, please. Multiple crew members offered testimony against Parker during the investigation, including the first mate who had convinced the captain to find a safer place to run aground after being let in on the scheme halfway through the voyage, and the helmsman, who the captain had ordered to maintain bearing after he had attempted to steer away from what looked like a reef. <laughs> Don't commit insurance fraud with people who hate you and will turn on you. Also an important step. Mary Howe, the first mate's wife, even produced a threatening letter Parker had sent to her husband to keep him quiet. Don't put your threats in writing. There's lots of things to learn here. Yeah, here's the thing. This is great in theory, but this was done by a very stupid man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this was not this was not well executed. He he left a paper trail, let's just say. Try not and to do lots that. Lots of witnesses. The investigation finally ended when Parker himself died while awaiting new trial after two mistrials. I mean, I guess that's one way to get out of it. Can't say I'd recommend that either. The Mary Celeste, meanwhile, simply sat rotting on the reef until some men came down to the shore and burnt what remained above the waterline. Good night, sweet prince. Sweet queen. <laughs> Flights of angels sing thee to thy... I think that they were just like, we're tired of this boat. This motherfucking this boat, boat in particular. On this motherfucking reef. And they were just like, light it up, boys. Well, the thing is, she was so poorly maintained by that point, because no one was... She was a money pit, to be blunt. She's an eyesore and a money pit, and fuck it. Probably haunted. Fuck it. <laughs> this is this is not the preferred method of clearing a ship that's run aground, but I guess in a pinch, it'll do? So, if anyone tells you that Mary Celeste still roams the waves, no, nah, I got burnt down in Haiti. <laughs> Hate it when that happens. After a round of insurance fraud, 
that got way less attention than it should have, I think. <laughs> no, I mean, the first time, they, like, they rake these dudes over the coals for months. The second time, they're like, eh, we'll just drag this up until the dude dies. We're done with this. Well, the news, the news didn't pay attention to it. The insurers were very interested. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone else is like, oh, actual insurance fraud where nobody vanishes mysteriously? Nah. Blame. I want aliens. <laughs> yeah, don't talk to me unless it's weird. But, like, people often say, like, ah, oh, she was cursed before and she was cursed after. I'm like, she was just an outdated ship that, just, like, just a boat. everyone hated because they got weird vibes off of her history. Like, she was not being given plum jobs by any stretch of the imagination. No, and you have to remember, sailors are some of the most, like, superstitious people alive. Yeah, because they so often die. I mean, I, that's fair. <laughs> I mean, it's not but, unreasonable. It's just not true. They're, they're, they have above average levels of superstition, so I would not take anything a sailor says about a ship being cursed. with Too literally. Too literally, no. He just, once a ship gives you the heebie-jeebies, that's about it. But yeah, that's the story of the Mary Celeste. It's not fun. <laughs> they died horribly, and there was nothing romantic about it and then it got rammed into a reef <laughs> no mystery just human tragedy now this is me ruining fun as always i've been jessica and i have been janelle and this is histories and mysteries <laughs>